Well, today we are looking at the closing chapter of this God-sized love story we've been talking about, a chapter in which the whole book is summarized through the message that I hope we're going to hear today, and it's this. We can be assured that God will redeem from every bitter misfortune to a place of pleasant fullness. Let me say that again. We can be assured that God will redeem us from every bitter misfortune to a place of pleasant fullness. I'm going to see that message, as you'll see in your sermon outline, in three incidents of redemption in this chapter. The redemption of Ruth in verses 1 to 12, the redemption of Naomi in verses 13 to 17, and the redemption of God's people in verses 18 to 22. So as we jump in with the redemption of Ruth in verses 1 to 12, let me just give everyone the briefest of reminders of where we are in the story. Our story began with Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, who was in the absolute worst of times. And Ruth, making a vow of covenant faithfulness to her, despite all the good reasons she had not to. This vow led her into the fields of a godly man named Boaz to seek to glean on behalf of Naomi and herself. And this she did until the end of the harvest, when Naomi and she hatched a very risky plan for Ruth to propose that Boaz propose. And propose he did, but with one snag, as we might remember. There was a closer kinsman redeemer who had the first right of refusal. And where we left off, Naomi and Ruth had to wait for Boaz, the man of action, to settle the matter. And we're picking up then from last week's cliffhanger to see, will this other man foil the wedding plans of Ruth and Boaz, or... Will Boaz be able, while still honoring the law, to redeem Ruth and move forward with the proposed marriage that all of us are hoping by this point is just around the corner? Let's find out. Look again at verses 1 to 12. Here we find Boaz, the man of action, on his mission, and he will not be stopped. The morning after Ruth's scandalous visit to the threshing floor, Boaz is at the city gate, the place where official business was done, in the presence of witnesses and the blessing of the town elders. In another little moment of too much coincidence, it just so happens that the closer relative walks by the gate at just the right time. This is quickly followed up thanks to Boaz's proactive recruitment with ten elders ready to convene the necessary amount for legal matters to be settled. And before we know it, Boaz is proceeding with the case, beginning by presenting to this other man not the situation with Ruth, but rather the situation with Naomi and the land that belonged to Elimelech, Naomi's husband, before he passed. Now, I need to say here that there's a lot of details about the specific situation that Naomi was in and the way that the law interfaced with her situation that we either don't know, don't quite understand, or honestly don't have time to go into detail about today. But suffice it to say that Naomi, as we already knew, is in a bad place, right? She's selling the family land here out of desperation rather than for profit. And so what's being discussed at the city gate is the practice of redeeming land and through that purchase, redeeming the family that was in this place of desperate need. Because here was the problem. See, if if someone within the larger clan or tribe didn't buy it in order to keep it within the family, someone from outside the tribe could buy it who had absolutely no concern for the people who originally owned it. You see? 
And the backdrop for all this is found in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. The first of those addressed keeping family lands in family hands through kinsman redemption, while the second addressed survival of the family name through leveret marriage. These parts of the Mosaic Law played a critical role in the ancient world of ensuring that widows who were in need were not only provided for, but also given a measure of security that their family line and their family land would go on. And the key thing to see in the situation before us in Ruth 4 is that while in redeeming land, the obligation was much broader, any close relative with the means was obligated to do so. When it came to preserving the family name through leveret marriage, the obligation was actually quite narrow, for it was only brothers who were obligated to act in that situation. Okay? Now, with that background, let's return to Boaz and the city gate. He begins by presenting to the kinsman redeemer his side of things, the land side of the equation. Look again at verses 4 to 5 and what Boaz says to the closer redeemer regarding the family land that Naomi is selling. He says, I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Okay? So Boaz is laying out the facts here. Elimelech's family's land needs to be redeemed. This man is first in line. He is the closest relative. So according to the law, he had first dibs, so to speak. Boaz is essentially calling him to step up and help this family in the way Leviticus 25 called for, or else, as the next kinsman in line, he would then do so. Now, when we hear the man respond, I will redeem it, we see another bit of tension enter the story here. Right? See, if this guy redeems the land, it throws a wrench in the whole plan we've seen developing. And so we might get a little nervous. How is this going to resolve? What is going to happen here? But it seems that Boaz is fully in control of the situation. As coolly as the other side of the pillow, he says, Now, of course, you know, don't you, that in redeeming the land, you also take upon yourself the obligation of acquiring Ruth the Moabite in order to maintain the name of Elimelech and his family. Ah, here's the kicker. We know it's the kicker, the ace up Boaz's sleeve, because listen to the other man's immediate response when this information is brought to light. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Ah, what a reversal all of a sudden, right? Why the change of heart? What happened there? Well, again, all the specific legal details are difficult to trace out, but here's likely what happened. This closer kinsman was initially interested in redeeming the land of Elimelech because, well, there was money that could be made from it. Yes, he was keeping in the family that it wouldn't be scooped up by some disinterested party, but it would be to his gain, even if he needed to support two widows with the productivity of the land, right? But here's where things get interesting. This close relative knew that Elimelech died along with his two sons. So there was no male heir to inherit the land down the line. Translation, the land he would be buying would now enter into his part of the inheritance. Right? Because the deceased Elimelech didn't have any living sons. And this closest relative assumed there was no brother who would enter into this leveret marriage in order to preserve the family line. Only because Naomi, Elimelech's widow, is way beyond childbearing years, remember? 
There was no chance for an heir to come about, and so redeeming Elimelech's land looked like it would be all gain and no sacrifice. But what he failed to take into account is whatever Boaz appeals to in verse 5, some understanding of and way of applying the law we, we can't fully trace out, where enacting the kinsman redeemer law, that's Leviticus 25, triggered some form of the leveret marriage law, that's Deuteronomy 25, right? At least in the eyes of this council, that's what's happening here. And see, once it's clear that there was an obligation to raise up an heir for a limelech through a woman of childbearing age, that's Ruth, right? Once it's clear that the action will serve a limelech's family rather than his own, once it's clear it would actually involve sacrificial loss rather than substantial gain, the closer relative bows out. What Boaz seems to be doing here is appealing not to the strict letter of the law, but rather to the spirit of it. A spirit which he believed called upon the larger clan to save this family, both their land and their name by any means that they could. According to Deuteronomy 25, neither man was obligated, was required by law, to marry Ruth for the sake of raising up descendants for Elimelech, for his name and his land to be passed on. They're not brothers of Elimelech or even brothers of his late two sons. But see, Boaz, unlike this closer relative, wasn't looking for ways that he could technically still be a law keeper while having all the profit for himself and his family. He was looking for ways to love and to show covenant faithfulness to this family that was on the brink of destitution and even extinction. And so by the end, as this strange transaction is marked by an even stranger exchange of sandals, which was their equivalent of shaking hands or signing on the dotted line, the difference between these two men couldn't be starker. And I wonder, did you notice anything strange about what the narrator did or didn't tell us about this man, this closer redeemer? Did you notice that he is never named? For a story with a lot of names and where the names mean a whole lot, that's, that's a big deal. But even more telling is something that isn't immediately obvious from our English text. In verse 1, Boaz calls on this man to come and have a seat at the city gate so that they can settle this important matter, right? Most of our English Bibles have something like Boaz calling out, come sit over here, friend. But in the Hebrew, the phrase isn't friend. What Boaz calls him is actually a pair of meaningless rhyming words, which gives us the equivalent of, come over here, Mr. So-and-so. Come over here, what's his name? Come over here, John Doe. One person even threw out, come over here, Jonesy-wonesy. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, Boaz certainly would have known the name of this closer redeemer, right? And he certainly would have called him by that name on the day of this event. But the narrator wants us to see the contrast between the man who seeks to barely fulfill his family commitments and legal obligations, no more, no less, and only if they serve his own interests, and the man who selflessly seeks to go above and beyond what the law requires to serve and love a family in need. That difference is, one man's name is lost in the dishonor of oblivion, while the other man's name is honored and remembered for generations to come. 
Boaz is honored and remembered for being concerned about more than his own name, for being concerned that Elimelech and his family doesn't disappear from the annals of history. While the man of self-interest, who had only his own name and preservation in mind, well, that's old, what's his name again? See, he's forgotten. But Boaz is not forgotten. He's celebrated. After he announces he'll buy all the property of Elimelech from Naomi and acquire Ruth as his wife to maintain the name of the dead, the elders and all the people looking on cry out triumphantly, yes, amen, yes, they say. We are witnesses of this wonderful, glorious, self-sacrificial thing that is going on in Bethlehem today. The redemption of Ruth and Naomi, but much more than that, the redemption of family land and an entire family line. And the elders then utter a threefold blessing upon them. First upon Ruth, that she would be like Rachel and Leah. Second upon Boaz, that he would continue to be a man of noble character, renowned in Bethlehem. And third upon Boaz's family line, that it would be similar to Perez, son of Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob and tribes of Israel. As we look on this scene, we realize that essentially what we have here are the wedding toasts. Without even realizing, we're heading to the chapel because this couple is about to get married. And the community looking on couldn't be happier about it. And we couldn't be happier about it either. As this section comes to an end, we realize that even though the key word in this book, the Hebrew word hesed, covenant faithfulness, kindness motivated by sacrificial love, even though that word isn't used here, it's very clear that what we have is yet another stunning picture of it on display. One scholar says that in some ways the book of Ruth is like a photo album of Hesed, a, a book full of pictures that help us understand what happens when God's people, in imitation of God himself, love and sacrifice for one another, especially when someone with power and resources takes care of someone who's in a place of desperate need. That's Hesed, the covenant faithfulness that we're called to show as God's people to do voluntarily what no one has the right to ask or expect of us. It's doing for others, especially others in need, way above and beyond the call of duty. Haven't we seen that again and again in this book? Ruth and Boaz both going way beyond the call of duty to serve someone in need. So much like the God we know who condescends to show kindness to his people who stand in utter need all the time. It's this trait that sets Ruth apart from her sister-in-law Orpah, who returns to Moab back in chapter 1, remember? And it's this same trait that sets Boaz apart from the unnamed closer redeemer, Jonesy-Wonesy, here in chapter 4. See, neither Orpah nor Mr. So-and-so are presented as bad people in this book. They're not evil people. That's not what's going on here. The decisions they make seem practical, and they make sense from a worldly point of view, right? It's like what you would imagine some counselor would advise and say, this is what you need to do to kind of keep your life together, right? But said goes above and beyond the call of duty for the sake of others in a way that's so attractive in Ruth and Boaz, a hesed only made possible because God's grace has made it so. And so part of what we should be reflecting on as we close this book is this. Where is God calling you and your family and your roommates by his grace 
to show his said to someone in your life. To show unconventional, sacrificial love that goes above and beyond the call of duty and the letter of the law. To help us in this, we should particularly think about what relationships we are in with someone where we are in a place of privilege and power and they are in a place of disadvantage and need and weakness. Have you ever asked, where has God placed me in a relationship of advantage where I could be a generous advocate for someone else, imitating our gracious God who reached out to us and became our advocate when we were completely powerless? Or you could ask it like this, who am I called to be a Ruth or a Boaz to? Who am I called to show just overflowing generosity and kindness, sacrificial love that helps them to thrive and flourish in a way that they couldn't do on their own? This is going to be by God's grace. We're not going to make this happen in our own power, but by His power, we can endeavor into this great calling. If we answer that question, we will have grappled with so much of what this rich book of the Bible has to offer us and what the Lord might be calling each of us to do in light of it. But the redemption isn't over. The next verses, 13 to 17, here we see the redemption of Naomi. Let's read the text again there, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Okay, so the marriage we're all waiting for unfolds. Ruth and Boaz make love, and note well what it says. The Lord enabled Ruth to conceive and give birth to a son. Now, this is significant because if we're reading chapter 1 closely, we learn that Ruth seems to have been unable to have children, or at the very least, that she wasn't able to conceive a child with Malion, her first husband. But now the Lord directly intervenes as he does in only one other place in the whole book, chapter 1, where the Lord acted to bring Israel's famine to an end. In both instances, the Lord moves in power to remedy two different forms of barrenness. And interestingly, on that note, Ruth, the woman for whom the whole book is named, largely passes from the scene so that we can focus back on Naomi. The weighty questions surrounding Naomi's plight, her emptiness, her questioning of God's love for her, are the central concerns of this book, her trial, the main event. And so it's only appropriate that as the book ends, we once again turn to this widow who began the book, after the death of her husband and two sons, accusing the Lord of being set against her, of afflicting her, of bringing her back empty and bitter. Do you remember? But here in chapter 4, we don't hear any more words from Naomi. 
No more complaints are being uttered. Instead, we hear from the women of Bethlehem as they gather around her once again, but this time to sing the way she is abundantly blessed, not cursed, pleasant, not bitter, full, not empty. Verses 14 to 15, the praise just bubbles over from these women who in light of the son born under Ruth and Boaz that will carry on the family name say that it's the Lord who brought about a kinsman, a guardian, a redeemer for Naomi. But we have to read closely here. Who is the redeemer being referred to? Boaz is our initial answer, right? He's the redeemer we've been talking about, but not here. The women say that this redeemer who's been provided to Naomi is the one whom Ruth, her daughter-in-law, has given birth to. It's the newborn son, Naomi's grandson. He's the redeemer the Lord has provided. He's the one who will be a renewer and restorer of Naomi's life. He's the one who will be a sustainer and nourisher for her in her old age. He's the one that the women bless and desire to become renowned in all of Israel. And then the women of Bethlehem subtly remind Naomi about the fact that when she came back from Moab, she didn't come back empty, as she had claimed. For she came back with Ruth, doggedly at her side, having vowed undying faithfulness to her. And now that faithfulness is seen as translating into one who has been better to Naomi than if she had had seven sons the perfect, complete number of sons in the ancient world. Wow. This is high praise in this day and age. The women are saying, you are blessed, Naomi. Though you thought the Lord's hand was against you and that you were accursed and that life was over, the Lord has indeed brought much blessing and fullness into your life. And he did it, of all people, through a Moabite daughter-in-law. We don't hear any response from Naomi. Instead, in verse 16, we just get a picture. It's a picture of a doting grandparent looking proudly upon her grandchild. And that's a powerful picture indeed. Just ask some of the folks with some gray hair and some grandchildren in this congregation, and they'll be sure to tell you the power of that picture. Naomi, the woman who was so bereaved over such intense loss, thinking all her life is over, is renewed. She's redeemed. And everyone looking on can see it. It's just there, evident. The women chime in again in verse 17. They just can't help themselves. They can't believe what the Lord has done for Naomi. They say, Naomi has a son. Not Ruth has a son, and Naomi has a grandson, which is technically what happened, right? No, Naomi has a son. One who will be her protector and will carry on the family name that, that she was afraid would die out when her former husband or sons passed away. That was one of her biggest fears. And here I think we need to just pause and acknowledge how much this book, and this section particularly, deals with concerns that are of particular significance to women. As one scholar put it, it's very interesting that as the book ends, we, we leave behind the largely male concerns of land rights and financial matters being discussed at the city gates for a female chorus that praises Yahweh for the way Naomi, as a widow, is provided for and supported through the blessing of a grandson in her old age. That's where we're ending, and that's significant. 
what a wonderful reminder we have in this that the book of Ruth is an incredible resource for women who are wrestling with real-life questions regarding God and Christian faith that are, well, in many ways distinctive to women. I mean, we know from Scripture that God has made men and women in His image with distinct and complementary natures that have certain tendencies and concerns and roles associated with them. And I think a lot of times there's a lamentable tendency for us to focus much more on the concerns that men tend to have as they engage God in the Scriptures than the concerns and questions that women tend to have. But see, here in the book of Ruth, we have a full-on exploration of questions and concerns that are distinct to women in many ways. And that's part of God's gracious provision in the Word, which is written to fully address both men and women, right? Carolyn James, for example, who has written an excellent study of Ruth that seeks to be particularly attuned to concerns she often hears from her sisters in Christ, brings out in spades the kinds of questions relevant to women that Naomi's trial and journey bring to the fore and that we, we shouldn't back away from here. Probably the one that hit me the hardest is something I would never even think to consider was this. Is God really good for women or is he only good for men? Wow. She confesses in her book that this is a question which many Christian women struggle with, a question which quietly nagged at her for years amidst experiences where she saw men flourishing in life and in the workplace and the church and women, uh, not so much. I wonder today how many of the women in our congregation find themselves wrestling with that basic question due to whatever life circumstances or family background or church experiences may have transpired in their lives. There's also a related question that James raises, and it's this. Does God have important kingdom work for women to do? Or are they to always play a cameo role behind the men whom God has deemed the real kingdom workers? Tough question. Good, honest, important questions. They, they come up and they remind me of a dear sister that I know whose life over the past few years has been full of relentless trial after relentless trial that in many ways have beaten her down and made her feel totally defeated. Her trials have been varied. Some of them have been personal losses. Some have been stinging betrayals. Others, the absence and deafening silence of the church and men in the church specifically during her time of need. She confessed to me at one point that it felt to her like God had sent her into exile. And I, I couldn't help but read in between the lines that she felt, in some ways, like Naomi, cursed and even abandoned by God. I know that some of what she faces is distinctly as a woman who is struggling with the kinds of questions the church doesn't often discuss, but that the book of Ruth allows to be asked. Is God really good for women? Does he have real valuable work for them to do? Or are they only second-class bit players always remain on the sidelines? Is that God's intention? If you're here, ladies, and you have found yourself asking these questions in your heart of hearts, maybe nobody else knows that you're asking them. 
then I commend to you fully and completely the testimony of the book of Ruth. We must remember where we began this story. We began it with a woman in the worst of times, in an unending famine, who concluded she was afflicted by God, that God was against her, that any pleasantness and fullness and life that she had ever experienced was over forever, only to be replaced by unending bitterness and emptiness. That's a deep, dark hole. And she was being brutally honest with God, wasn't she? She was bringing that to him. But what do we see transpire? What do we see come about in Naomi's life according to God's pleasant providence? Redemption. Redemption. Being bought back, being brought back from the pit of despair to a place of blessing and flourishing. Why? Because God's has said his covenant faithfulness to this woman, to this sister, never ran out. Just like it never runs out for any of you sisters in this room, despite the lies that you might be tempted to believe. The book of Ruth is a salvo. God loves women. He loves men too, but he loves women. God is for them. They are precious in his sight, and he has valuable kingdom work for them to do. Ladies, do you believe that God is good for you as a woman? That he wants you to thrive and flourish as a woman? That he is working to redeem you as a woman from whatever pit of curse and bitterness and emptiness you may find yourself in? And that he has inestimably valuable work for you to do alongside of your brothers in this room? All of this flows out of a proper reflection on how redemption came for Naomi. And it is coming for my dear sister, who, who feels that she's in exile in some ways, and it will come for you no matter what you're feeling and where you're at right now. It will. How do I know that? Because of what we find in Roman numeral three. At the close of this book, the redemption of God's people in verses 18 to 22. That's the guarantee. Our text, our story concludes with a genealogy. Now, if your reaction is anything like mine on a first reading of Ruth, then you're saying to yourself, you can't end a romance like this with a genealogy. I mean, come on, haven't you read Shakespeare? All's well that ends well, right? We should be lingering at this reception and seeing happily ever after written on the back of the windshield as the couples drive off into the sunset. That's what we want. But see, this is why I'm glad Scripture challenges assumptions like these. In this case, challenging the assumption that a Cinderella ending is the best way to close. For if all we had at the end was a Disney version of Ruth and Boaz, we would be so robbed of the real message of the story being driven home. The real message is not that all a woman needs to be happy and fulfilled is a husband and a child. This is not, I repeat, this is not the reinstatement of a leave-it-to-beaver approach to life being offered to us here. Far from it. The real message is that far better than any of the good gifts which the Lord may give, whether provision or protection, a husband or a wife, children, kinsman redeemer who secures the family's future, far better than any of these gifts is the gift giver himself. And the redemption that he wins for his people as the hero of the story who has initiated and executed the rescue plan 
And you're thinking, all this from a genealogy? I didn't read any of that in there. Where, where are you getting that? But as is so often the case in the Old Testament, the message is communicated in subtle but very powerful ways. This genealogy forces us to take a wider view from one family and clan to the entire nation. This particular family line, once in severe jeopardy but now intact because of the said of Ruth and Boaz, runs from Perez, the son of Judah, all the way down through Boaz and Obed to Jesse and then David. Yes, that's King David. Now this is stunning. We've been hearing the story of two destitute widows and a generous landowner, right? This is like micro scale. But look at what God did through them in the midst of their trial. He wove them into the genealogy of the greatest king who would ever rule over Israel. But for those of us who know that the God-sized love story continues long past David, we can't help but think about the distant descendant who will come from David, and therefore from this union of Ruth and Boaz, the one who is the son of David and even greater in his rule and righteousness. For you see, at the end of the story, we're actually being led to look beyond the heroes of this story to the heroes of the story, the hero of the story, the greater love story that's being given to us in Scripture. We're being invited to look in on that. We see that Ruth, who is an embodiment of his said, of covenant faithfulness, is giving way to the greater Ruth, the one who would make a vow of faithfulness to a people who were in desperate straits and would give up everything to make sure they were provided for. We see that Boaz, the man of godly character, the kinsman redeemer who acts with courage and valor, is giving way to the greater kinsman redeemer who was to come, the one who could truly rescue and fully redeem God's people and ensure that their inheritance was theirs forever. We even see that Obed, this this fresh baby boy that's on the scene, whose name means one who serves, is giving way to the one who would become for us a suffering servant, serving us by laying down his life in our place. We see as we look at the larger love story that's being told in Scripture that we are, all of us, Naomi, a people who are in the gravest of circumstances, who can't possibly save ourselves from the curse and affliction and bitterness and emptiness that we experience in the fallen, broken world. But see, God saw our place of desperate need, and he met it. In part, through the events we've heard recounted here in Ruth these last few weeks, he met our need by raising up in the great, 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 great grandson of Boaz and Obed and David, a man the God-man, who would be a kinsman redeemer, not just for Israel, but for the entire world that was lost and without hope apart from God. Of course, that man's name is Jesus. Jesus, the Davidic Messiah, who came as the greater Ruth, as the greater Boaz, as the greater Obed, as the greater David, to redeem Naomi's like you and me. It's Jesus that Hebrews 2.11 tells us was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and thus serves as our elder brother, laying down his own life that his family could be redeemed and brought from the brink of destitution and extinction. It's Jesus that 1 Peter 1, 3-5 reassures us 
has won for us an inheritance that can never fade or perish, and that put away the need for emergency measures like kinsmen, redeemers, and leveret marriage. Why? Because we as God's people have already been fully and completely redeemed, brought back, bought back from whatever would threaten our security and eternal provision and joy. EBF, do you see how Jesus is the one to whom the whole story of Ruth points? Do you see how in this God-sized love story, we see God demonstrate his love for us, his people, by fully redeeming us in Christ? If it all ends with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, right? I mean, great story, but so what? I mean, that was then, this is now. Naomi gets out of her storm, but I've still got mine, right? But if, in fact, this story is given for us to see that God does indeed redeem his people from every bitter misfortune to a place of pleasant fullness in Christ, then the story has achieved its purpose. There is a redeemer for you and for me and for any and all who would call out to God, even today, and say, I need the work of this redeemer, Jesus. I need the salvation that only he can bring. I need to be rescued from the curse and the emptiness that defines this life apart from God. I need the Holy Spirit to renew me through and through. Will you cry out to him today for the first time or the thousandth time and call on him as our great kinsman redeemer, the one whose love and mercy and grace and power for us is attested again and again and again in this God-sized love story we call the Bible? I encourage you to do that today. Let's pray for help to do that. Lord Jesus, we see the wonders, the glories of what your word sets forth before us. Help us to see even more. Help us to press deeper into the realities of how every single piece of scripture, old and new, points to you. It finds its fulfillment in you. It, it shows us our need and shows the abundant provision that you have made for that need. Oh, Jesus, we do call out to you today with thanks that you are indeed the great kinsman redeemer for us and with a, a sense of desperation that we need you, that we need this redemption you have won. And we thank you for the ways that Ruth and Boaz and even Obed and even Naomi have prepared the way for us to see that. Do that work in our hearts. Call people unto yourself who do not know this redeeming work yet and reassure and sustain and refresh and renew your people, men and women here, who need that refreshing by your grace. Pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.